Evening to First Corinthians chapter ten. First Corinthians chapter ten, which is part of the apostles' instruction about the Lord's Supper. There's uh, several times that he references or speaks to the Lord's Supper. In his first epistle, he does that in the fifth chapter where he speaks about some of the problems that were occurring when they gathered together. And among them was they were allowing a member who, to participate who should not. Then um, chapter 11, which you're aware of, it's quoted in our form, and we considered that recently in the Heidelberg Catechism. So I thought it would be good for us to read chapter 10, which is also instruction on the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them And that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent. We should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, neither be ye idolaters as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. All these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry, I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold Israel after the flesh. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then? that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything. But I say that the things which the Denchals sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? 
All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God, give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. We read that far in God's holy word, and this evening we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 30. <clears throat> What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which He Himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ who, according to his human nature, is now not on earth, but in heaven, at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them, so that the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ, and an accursed idolatry. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins, and yet trust, that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to this supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No. For by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore it is the duty of the Christian church according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life.
Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the subject of this Lord's Day is the proper participant of the Lord's Supper, what is called in our forms the worthy participant, which term is implied in Scripture by the Apostle Paul himself when twice in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 27 and 29 he refers to those who eat and drink unworthily. And if there are those who eat and drink unworthily, that implies that there are others who eat and drink worthily. And so that is the subject of this Lord's Day. That this is subject of this Lord's Day is plain from the questions that are asked in Lord's Day 30. Question and answer 81 asks, For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? That is, for whom is the Lord's Supper intended? For whom is the Lord's Supper grace? Who, in eating and drinking at the Lord's Supper, eats and drinks Christ for benefit and profit? That's the question, really. Then the next question, in answer 82, it speaks about some people, certain people, who may not be admitted. In other words, there are also others who are admitted, and the question is, who are they? The subject, the proper participant in the Lord's Supper, becomes even more plain in the original German of question and answer 81. Our English has, for whom is the Lord's Supper, and the original German literally asks, Who shall come to the table of the Lord? Who shall come? Not may come, but shall come. May is implied, of course. And that question is really the one we're going to use as the theme for the sermon this evening. It's really the same question as asking who is the worthy participant, or even the question asked in Psalter number 59, who shall stand before the Lord? This question, who shall come to the table of the Lord, is a very, very important question. A very necessary question for us to ask and to answer. And what makes it important, what makes it necessary to ask and to answer, is in the first place the very nature of the sacrament itself. If the sacrament was intended for all, if the sacrament imparted grace to all, then there would really be no need to even ask such a question. But the sacrament and the very nature of the sacrament is that it is not intended for all, it is not grace for all, nor is grace imparted to all even who participate. The sacrament is holy. It is sanctified. It is set apart. It is intended for certain people and not others. The nature of the sacrament is that it was intended to feed God's children, the Lord's children, 
and not all children of men in this earth. That this is the case is made clear when we read that there are those who partake not only unworthily, but they are judged severely because they eat and drink what they ought not. We read that they are guilty of the body and blood of our Lord. They eat and drink damnation. They're swigging down and chewing on damnation. But the importance of this question and the necessity of answering it also has something to do with faith. And we're going to look at that a little bit further when we get to the questions of self-examination, which questions are echoes of the instruction of the Catechism here. In fact, it would be good for us, I intend to even read large portions of that form as we go through the sermon to see how closely they line up. It would line up. It would be good to even have that out in front of you. And those questions show that a judgment concerning the worthy participation also has to do with the nature of faith. The catechism here, which is our focus, answers that question, who shall come to the table of the Lord from two perspectives or viewpoints. The first is that of question and answer 81, and that perspective is really of the individual, the person. The person, the member, the individual asks that question and asks it about himself. And to answer that question requires a self-examination and a personal judgment. That this is a true viewpoint, a real aspect of asking that question is brought out by the Apostle in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, where he calls it judging ourselves, that is, making a personal judgment about ourselves. Then there's the viewpoint of the church, the ecclesiastical viewpoint. That's the point, viewpoint of question answer 82. It sets forth the reality that with regard to that question, who shall come to the table of the Lord, there is a, a collective responsibility to see that the table of the Lord is not profaned by the attendance of the unworthy. And um, that also is referenced by the Apostle in the book of Corinthians. Here's where 1 Corinthians 5 comes into play, verse 12. He calls it the church's responsibility to judge those within. To judge those within. Those without, he says, God will judge. But you judge those within. And that's especially with regard to who shall come to the Lord's table. So we consider that question this evening in two points, the individual's judgment and then the church's judgment. First, the individual's judgment. The individual's judgment, one's personal judgment about whether or not they may come or shall come to the Lord's table, that is, whether or not they meet the qualifications that are determined by God Himself has nothing to do with the determination of those qualifications as such. When we speak about the individual's judgment, in other words, we're not referring 
to an individual's authority and even ability to make those qualifications himself or herself. When we speak of the individual's judgment, we're not speaking about determining what are the standards, what are the qualifications to come to the Lord's table. It's common today that that is done. Much of the church shows itself today to be apostate exactly because it does that. The church or the individual makes their own qualifications. If the church doesn't do it, then there's usually individuals that are doing it. And they're the ones who are trying to determine who may and may not come. And they base that not even on God's standards, but their own. However, much more common is for the church and the individual to say there's no qualifications whatsoever. In response to the question, who shall come to the table of the Lord? The answer is everyone. We desire everyone to come. Everyone should come. There's no one who mayn't come. All are welcome. All should eat and participate. That is, we've determined that. That's not because God has determined that. It's because we have determined that. And it's done un, under all sorts of justification. It's done under the guise of love. Or that to say that there's qualifications or standards is opposed even to grace. Well, if we're saved by grace and we eat by grace and God's mercy, then, then there can't be any qualifications. Or a misunderstanding of grace. An understanding that grace is common. Grace is for everyone. God seeks to save everyone. God seeks to feed everyone. And so why would anyone be denied from the table of the Lord? That's not true. None of that's true. Underlying, we should see this entire Lord's Day, is the fact that the Lord tells us exactly who may and who may not partake of the Lord's table. And in so doing wonderfully by that question in the original German sets forth the notion that they are also the ones who shall, they will, and they must partake, and no one else. When we refer to one's individual judgment, we're also not referring to one's own personal judgment of everyone else. When it comes to the qualifications that are established in question and answer 81, and even though it speaks of those and them, the point of this is it's referring to the individual, all the individuals who by faith believe this. When it comes to self-examination and the purpose of self-examination, there too, it often speaks of they or them. But we all know that it's personal referring to the individual. It is self-examination, examination of me and my behavior and my attitude and not yours and the other members. That doesn't mean, as we will see, that there is not a personal judgment that needs to be made, but it's made then collectively, ultimately, the answer to the question whether an individual may or may not partake of the Lord's Supper is determined by the church through the elders. 
When it comes to the individual's judgment and the individual's qualification to partake, it really all can be summarized as one qualification. I want you to see that. When we look at the explanation of the Catechism in question and answer 81, and when you look at the explanation even of question and answer 82, or even self-examination, if you look at it rightly, you could say there's really only one qualification, and that's faith. The answer to the question is who of who shall come to the table of the Lord is really simple. The believer, and only the believer. The answer to the question, who shall not come to the table of the Lord, is equally simple. The unbeliever. That is, the one who's not living by faith, but in unbelief. That we must see. We must see that every point that is made in question and answer 81, every one of those qualifications really, in one way or another, points to faith, is about faith. When you look at the three main points that echo this instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, they all really are all about faith. They're designed really for us to examine whether or not I have faith and am living by faith. Am I a believer? Now I want to be clear about that. It will become very plain in a very short while that not all of those questions and not all of the qualifications that are laid out here are faith itself. Some pertain to faith. Some pertain to the activity of faith, believing. Do you believe this faithful promise of God is one of the questions in the form that we are to ask ourselves. But some of them are simply aspects of faith, corollaries of faith, and also fruits of faith. So they pertain to faith in a more roundabout way. When one looks at the qualifications for the Lord's Supper, and one looks at these qualifications and looks at the questions of self-examination, you're going to discover that very quickly. Well, this has to do with an attitude, or this has to do with a determination, which is an attitude or determination of faith, of course. But if you look a little closer, and you ask, well, why that question? The answer to that is it has to do with the relationship of faith and works. Faith in what one does. Faith in how one lives. I said earlier that the importance and the necessity of answering the question, who shall come to the table of the Lord, mainly concerns the nature of the sacrament, but it also it also concerns, it also is related to faith. And what faith does, and the especially the inseparable relationship between faith and the fruits of faith. You see, the Reformed faith believes that faith is never dead. That faith that is dead that is, a faith that is not a living faith, cannot partake of the Lord in the sacrament. Because, as we made plain last week, that's how we eat and drink Christ, by faith, faith alone. But a dead faith can't do that. Only a living faith can. And how do we know, then, that faith is living? When we look at the great qualification, which is faith, 
And the great qualification, because else there's no other way to eat and drink. We eat and drink by faith. So that's the great qualification. And then we ask ourselves, well, how do we know we have faith? How do we know we have true faith? One of the, There's a lot of answers to that question, but one of them is, well, it has to be living. Well, how do we know faith is living? And the answer is, well, it produces fruit. Inevitably. Always. Without a doubt. Never is faith separated from its fruit. Never is faith without works. Period. End of story. And that's why there's questions concerning that. But I still maintain there's really only one qualification. Faith. Now, about that. Here, we're going to read both the Heidelberg Catechism and the form, and I'm going to show you where they line up. The first aspect of faith, the first qualification as it concerns faith, is that faith always is truly sorrowful for sin. So the answer to the question, who shall come to the table of the Lord, is one who is truly sorrowful for sin. And if someone is not truly sorrowful for sin, then they shall not. And they may not come to the table of the Lord. That is what question answer 81 asks. In our English, it asks, for whom is the Lord instituted? Who is the Lord's Supper instituted? Who is it for? Who is it benefit? Who may, in the original German, who shall come? Who may partake? And the answer is, for those who are truly sorrowful for their sins. And that's echoed. That's taught by our form. The true examination of ourselves consists of these three parts. First, first, first not only in the Heidelberg Catechism, but first in the form that everyone, that you, the individual, consider by himself. There you go, by himself. Everyone, but do it by yourself. By himself, what? His sins. And then lest we think, well, let me see, does that mean simply that I admit I'm a sinner, that I have sins? No. To be truly sorrowful for sins doesn't mean simply that you admit that you have sins, or even confess you have sins. Some people really make a mistake there. Elders can make that mistake. Individuals can make that mistake. Well, he confessed his sins. You mean he admitted his sins. Well, that's great. There's all kinds of unbelievers that admit their sins. There's all kinds of unbelievers that will admit they shot 20 people and they cheat on their wife. That's not being truly sorrowful for sins. We consider himself his sins and the curse due to him for them. That's part of being truly sorrowful. Really answers the question, well, why now are you truly sorrowful? When you consider your sins and the tears pour down your eyes, and you find great grief in your heart, the question is, why? Many will say, because of my sins. But if you look further, it's not for the reason laid out in the form. It's because they got caught. It's because their wife is now going to lead them, leave them. It's because their theft cost them their job. It's because they were caught in their lies and now no one trusts them. It's not the sorrow do that comes from knowing the curse due to my sins. 
Perhaps there's sorrow that this particular sin maybe comes with a curse, but not the others. Notice, truly sorrowful for sins isn't truly sorrowful for one or two or the couple that I got caught with, the ones that are public or gross, but all my sins. It is the sorrow of heart that all my sins are due the curse of God. And there's more. Because, again, even an unbeliever might have a certain understanding that his sins are due hell or death. Might even have some recognition that when I'm executed in the electric chair, I had that coming. But true sorrow for sin also has this. Humility. It is the sorrow of humility that He, I, you, may abhor and humble ourselves before God. True sorrow for sin means that in a very real way I stand before God and I abhor myself. I hate myself. I hate who I am. I hate what I do. I hate what I am in the judgment in the eyes of God. And that's really humility. That's not where we start. That's the first qualification. That's the first answer to the question, who shall come to the table of the Lord? And notice too, when the, when the form says humble himself and abhors himself, that that's simply not simply sorrow for the sins I commit, but the person who comes to the table of the Lord and benefits from the table of the Lord is one who is sorrowful for who they are, that is their depravity, their sinful nature. You recognize that in yourself? Will you recognize that in yourself as you come to the table of the Lord? The problem, my misery, my trouble, that which causes me grief and sorrow to no end is not simply my sins, but I'm a sinner. These sins bubble up in me and they come from corners that I don't even recognize. It's who I am. That's true humility. And it's absolutely necessary to come to the table of the Lord. Only such an one shall come. It may be left there. It may be left with sorrow over sin, including what our confessions say is sorrow over our remaining infirmities, sorrow because our sins deserve the wrath of God and humility, abhorring ourselves before Him. It may not be left there ever. There's a second part, which is that faith trusts in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Again, the Heidelberg Catechism. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorry for their sins, and yet, notice that, and yet, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmities, remember my mention of that, are covered by His passion and death. That's the second thing. Not simply, not only repentance. That's what sincere sorrow over our sin is, repentance. Only the repentant may come to the table of the Lord. But to be truly repentant is also to trust. Trust in Christ. 
trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that even the remaining infirmities, even my depravity, even future sins are covered by His passion and death. Now there's a lot more to that, a lot more involved in that. You can, for example, realize that faith trusts in Christ because it's something that is done, something that He did once. That's emphasized in question and answer 82. It's emphasized in question and answer 80, rather, when it talks about the difference between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass. That's really where this can be brought in. When it comes to trusting in Christ and what the sacrament presents and teaches, what, what is it teaching? What, what does it symbolize? What's going on? And here our fathers say, the Mass leads an entirely different direction. It teaches you to trust in the actual bread and wine. To trust in it because it actually physically is the body of Christ, though that body is in heaven. It teaches you not to lift your eyes up to heaven, but look there on this table. Oh, and it's not a table, it's an altar. It's not a table where we eat food, but it's an altar where someone is sacrificed. Our fathers say it's a denial of the one sacrifice of Christ. It's an idolatry. Just like Israel of old worshipped a bunch of golden calves that they called Jehovah God. So in the Roman Catholic Church, they worship an idol. An idol of bread and wine that they say is Jesus Christ. Not true. And then, even worse, they say what Christ did once isn't good enough. He has to be offered over and over again. Slain and killed. Bloodied over and over and over again. Well, faith doesn't believe that. Faith that trusts in Jesus Christ doesn't believe that. Now I want to read from the form. And here there's a slight variation from the Heidelberg Catechism. You will include, you'll notice that the part about trusting in Jesus Christ for forgiveness is partly included in the first part, the first item of self-examination. So I'm going to read that. Everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them to the end that he may abhor and humble himself before God. Now notice. Considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great, and we may put that as part of repentance, part of sorrow of sin. Part of the sorrow of sin is the consideration that the wrath of God against sin is so great that it must be punished. It must be punished. Now our form quickly moves on. Listen. Considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that rather than it should go unpunished, because of course if God would punish us for our sins, we're done. We're finished. The wrath of God against executed against sin is death, isn't it? And if God executes that sentence against us, we're dead, aren't we? We can't live. We're dead. That, by the way, is why faith is directed to Jesus Christ. That all by itself should do it. If God would exact the punishment even of one sin, then I cannot ever live. I will not ever live. Eternal life is out of the question. But God can't leave sin unpunished either. So the form goes, He hath punished the same in His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. In other words, Part of self-examination is, do you believe that? Do you believe that God actually did that? 
That's part of trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And then you'll find the other part of it in the second part, the second point of the form for self-examination. Again, listen. That everyone examine his own heart for what? About what? Whether he doth believe. And the idea is not simply believe that God, rather than leave sin go unpunished, hath punished my sin in Jesus Christ, but whether he doth believe this faithful promise of God, that all his, my, sins are forgiven me because I'm a worthy participant. No, that's not what it says. God hath forgiven my sins because my faith is so great. No, that's not what it says either. That God hath forgiven my sins because I'm sitting here eating and drinking. No, that's not what it says either. I believe this faithful promise of God, that all my sins are forgiven me only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ. Only. It's not given because I repent. It's not given because I'm sorrowful for sin. It's not given because I've humbled myself. It's given for the sake of the passion and death of Christ. Oh, and more. There's more when it comes to the forgiveness of sins. That the perfect righteousness of Christ, His perfect obedience, who and what He is, is imputed and freely given me, Him, as His own, so perfectly as if He, me, I, had satisfied in His own, my own, your own person for all His, my, your sins and fulfilled all righteousness. In other words, God looks at what I'm supposed to do in the light of His law, perfect obedience. God doesn't simply say your sins are forgiven, your failures. I don't simply forgive all the transgressions, all the misdeeds. God doesn't simply say, and all that I require for that is paid for and forgiven. But everything I require, perfect obedience, perfect love for me and perfect love for the neighbor, the requirement that you never, ever sin, never commit adultery, never steal, never covet, never slander and backbite against your neighbor. That you worship me on the fourth, that you worship me seven, the seventh day of the week, that you worship me in spirit and in truth, all of that, I consider done. Not because you did it, but because Christ did it. And, this, and then there's this line that faith believes. It's my own. God looks at it as if I did it. That, that, that's even more amazing. Christ knows who did it. Faith knows who did it. Faith knows what that righteousness is. Faith knows where that obedience comes from. But God looks at it as if I did it. And you did it. Um, then lastly, thirdly, Faith desires to live more and more holy. The faith that is humble, the faith that is repentant, the faith that believes in our Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins and His righteousness always desires to live more holy. Never otherwise. In other words, there's something about faith in this life that's really never satisfied. Kind of amazing if you think about it. 
It's expressed, really, even at the Lord's table with a certain hunger. Sort of like a hunger in us. That once we're given life, it produces a hunger, a desire. So much does faith hate and flee from sin. It just doesn't do that, but it desires the good. It flees toward the good. It wants the good. And so you have in the Heidelberg Catechism that point. And who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened. That important point. It also recognizes my faith isn't as strong as it could be. Oh, it's real, it's alive, it's true, it's genuine. But I also recognize that when I sin, it's because my faith is weak. So I desire to have my faith more and more strengthened. And their lives more holy. Now that's really no different, again, than the form. Which says, thirdly, that everyone examine his own conscience. Earlier it was his own heart. His own conscience, whether he purposeth, that is, he's determined. You see how it builds on what the Catechism says. One talked about a desire. The form talks about a purpose, a determination, a vow, a promise. Henceforth, to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life and to walk uprightly before him, as also whether he hath laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, hatred, and envy, and doth firmly resolve henceforth to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. You say, now why is that there? The reason for that question and is the reason for that point made in question answer 81 this? That God looks and says, I, I need to see enough good works. I need to see if you have done enough. If you've met a certain standard. Oh, I know you can't make the whole standard, but maybe you beat me 25%. 20%. I'll give you 1%. You 1%. That's good enough. That's the, is that the qualification? No, that's not the qualification at all. In, in fact, the form even cuts that off. So does the Heidelberg Catechism when it simply speaks of the desire, the purpose, the determination, the resolve, not even actually doing it. Now, that of course follows the resolve. So you have a fruit of the resolve. But the resolve and the determination and the vow is all of faith. And that's where it begins. And it's infallible. And this is, this is what we must know and this is what we must ask ourselves about. This is the purpose of self-examination. Why is that? Because it's through that we are assured. It's, it's through that that we know, that we are confident that we, we may be here. We may be confident of the Lord's blessing. Now there's dangers involved in that. One of the reasons that we go through self-examination, that we have a preparatory sermon, is because because there's always a tendency that we simply come to the Lord's table out of custom and superstition. We come because we think there's something uh, mysterious that just sort of happens, maybe even automatically. It's something we do, something I'm supposed to do because I'm a member of the church. Or there's the danger that we conduct a self-examination of ourselves dishonestly. That dishonesty could even come in the form of being too rigorous, applying qualifications that really aren't there, that the Lord doesn't Himself make. Or when we use those qualifications, we're dishonest about them. Very simple questions. And even with the one about desiring to be more and more holy, we, we should 
in our minds sometime go through that long list of sins that we find in the Lord's Supper form and look at that because that's that's helpful in determining the sins that I ought to abhor and be sorrowful given to raise discord sex and mutiny in church or state look at that we say yeah there's all kinds of rebels out there in the state no we're, we're rebels in the church too we're always running around creating division we have no problem using slander, gossip, and backbite to destroy, to divide. That's what's going on in Corinth. Contentious persons. Contentious persons shouldn't be at the Lord's table. At least if they don't recognize they're contentious and repent of that and are sorrowful for that. Those who are never content with anybody else have no appreciation for the brotherhood and the sisterhood of the church. The glorious institution is the one body of Jesus Christ. But now we want to talk briefly about the judgment of the church. There's something amazing about the judgment of the church that's talked about in Lord's Day 82, and it addresses a couple of things. The first is this shall, who shall come. And it's amazing how often when you look closely at the catechism, when you look at the form, how that's emphasized. That Attendance at the Lord's Supper is not optional. It's not simply left to the individual. That the individual must see, should see, that he must partake. When he can examine himself, when he can look at those qualifications, when he finds those things within himself, his response is, I have no other choice. This is what I must do. That's brought out in the Catechism when it talks about being admonished and assured in the Supper about how we partake according to the commandment of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's even brought out in baptism. We are obligated to partake of the Lord's Supper by our own baptism. To not partake is rebellion. To remove or absent ourselves of the Lord unlawfully is wrong, is offensive to God. And we could do that. And then there has to be a judgment, a judgment of the church. The church has to evaluate. The church may have to knock on your door and say, young man, young man, you are of age. You are of the age when you should be able to examine yourself and know whether you have true faith or not. You're at the age when you ought to be spiritually mature and you need to partake of the Lord's table. Now, Mainly what's brought out in question answer 82 actually is those who should not partake. We tend, when we look at that list, to think about the judgment of the church and discipline barring people. And that's what discipline does. It is amazing that in discipline, that's the main thing, the main way discipline is expressed. You are barred from the Lord's table. But we don't often think about the, church, the, the church's obligation to uh, the consistory uh, to judge with regard to who should come, who must come. The church shouldn't be in the business of discouraging people, walking around trying to discourage those. There's churches like that. If you go to them, as, especially as a young man, and you say, I want to make confession of faith, so I'm our take of the Lord's table, uh, generally they'll ask you a whole pile of questions designed to discourage you. They say, well, maybe you ought to wait. And you wait and you wait until finally you're in your 50s. And they might allow you to become because you have to tell them some story about how you had some sort of experience and vision. You had some sort of vision of the Lord. 
who told you some things, or you saw some things, some heavenly things, then maybe you can partake. Again, those are all man-made qualifications. They're not the Lord's. Now, a couple things I want to make clear uh, briefly is that both of these questions and answers teach us the truth that both we as individuals and collectively the church must judge. If you're going to quote the passage, judge not lest ye be judged, don't be quoting it that way. See, we're not supposed to judge. It happens in the church. Well, they may judge. You may judge. No one may judge. We don't know the heart. We don't know if they're elect or reprobate. That's all nonsense. God calls us to judge. In fact, there's disaster in the church when there's not judgments being made, either at the individual level or at the church level, ecclesiastical level. And it includes the individual level. In fact, one of the first ways that discipline goes away in the church is because it's not exercised at the individual level. Some people get frustrated because this isn't being disciplined or that being disciplined. Sometimes it's ignorant. They don't really know who's being disciplined because the first step is silent. No one knows. And the consistor isn't going to tell you if you ask. But often it's because no one bothers bringing anything to the consistory. No one doesn't care. We absent ourselves from that judgment. We have no concern. And we may even quote the passage, Judge not lest you be judged. You know, I don't know their heart. That text of our Lord means judge, judge. But don't judge unrighteously. Judge how you want to be judged. Don't judge the way the world judges. Don't judge rashly. Don't judge unheard. And so there is some truth that we don't judge strictly or even as an individual entirely on what the heart is. No man knows the heart. There are limits to judgment, both as individuals and as a church. And what we really judge is the outward behavior. What these questions are designed to do and what they have to do is the hypocrite. And the hypocrite is one who hides who he is. Ultimately, you cannot see or know the hypocrite as such until he reveals himself or herself. And then you may judge. And that's because what's in the heart will come out. It will break forth into action if there is no repentance. And that may be judged. Also notice with that judgment, you're not judging someone's election or approbation. But also don't make the mistake of saying, well, you're not judging that they're unbelievers. They are unbelievers. The man who is living in sin and who is barred from the table is barred from the table because he's living in unbelief. If the qualification to partake is faith, then what you're saying is you don't have faith. You lack faith. And we know you lack faith because you lack all of the things that belong to faith and the fruit of faith. It's not there. And that must be judged. And if it's not judged, disaster happens. Disaster. Disaster for the individual. The individual goes down life whistling merrily, imagining to himself he's going to see the Lord someday in heaven. He imagines to himself he's fellowshipping with God. He has a good relationship with God. He actually believes that often. In fact, this is not true. And only discipline can bring that to his mind. Only discipline can say, no, 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 no. You're not fellowshipping with God. You're not the friend of God. You're the enemy of God. Look the way you walk. You don't, you don't believe your sins are forgiven. You may say that, but you haven't repented. You haven't turned from them. 
There's no desire to live a new and holy life. There's no abhorrence of sin. Now again, you're not saying anything about whether the individual is elect or reprobate. You don't have to. But if that individual has a spark of faith that otherwise, by all appearances, is dead, so dead that the church says it's dead, so dead that the church says we don't see it, but yet there's the possibility of a spark, the spark of life that God has given, perhaps in regeneration. Then there's one thing that will turn it into an inferno, and that is being barred from the table, being told you are not a member of the kingdom of heaven. Now that's not always the case. Sometimes there's a hardening that goes on. But notice that, will you please, how it is right at this point that living a new and holy life is brought out. And both the form and the catechism are absolute. No adulterer, no murderer, no abuser of men, no contentious person, no schismatic, none shall enter. Notice that. That's absolute language. And how can the form how can the catechism speak that way? And the answer is because only the repentant, only the believer is not those things. Such is our salvation, such is the forgiveness of sins, such is what our Lord Jesus Christ imputes to us that I am not those things. And that's what we're to examine ourselves about. That's what we're to question. I'm not going to read the form again with you. I have read tonight that whole part of self-examination. You can read it for yourself and see if that's true. But that's what we're doing, and that's the teaching of Lord's Day 30. Who shall come to the table of the Lord? The answer is the believer. Sinful believer. It's the hypocrite who doesn't see himself as a sinner or such a great sinner that's barred. But the believer, the sinful believer, the repentant believer, he, he is received. And the one who believes that is received. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God and Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word, thy word of truth, the word and faith of our fathers. We pray, O Lord, give us faith, faith even to examine ourselves in this upcoming week, that we may see, believing that we are partakers who are worthy, not worthy because we ourselves are worthy, but made worthy by the blood of the Lamb whom we trust in and believe for all of forgiveness and power over sin. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.